Clubhouse. Welcome back to Pod Clubhouse's continuing coverage of the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. This is for season four, episodes three and four. The first one is called Everything is Belmore. And the next one is called Interesting People on Christopher Street. This is Paul. This is Caroline. Episode three, Everything is Belmore. Although it is titled after a quote from our drop-in cameo (laughs) appearance uh, from Lenny Bruce, it really centers around the Paladinos, which incidentally, this episode was written by Amy and Dan, but directed by Dan, centers around their ongoing 25-year relationship with Brian Tarantino, the actor who played Jackie, and their desire to give him and his character a, a proper send-off rather than some an unceremonious being written out or some other TV device for just explaining away the fact that he couldn't appear anymore. We had been asking each other how they would handle Jackie's death in that, you know, would they actually have them directly deal with it or would we just stop going to the gaslight? Would we, you know, have scenes in Susie's apartment where Jackie just happens to be out just then? Would they actually address it? You know, so we finally got our answers here. What do you think about the way that Susie was handling everything and the way that Amy and Dan chose to memorialize Jackie, but in many ways, Brian himself. Susie, and she was raised to project a hard outer shell, but then also suffers from what I call a narrow emotional bandwidth for being able to process problems, information, different kinds of situations. And so the death of Jackie being so sudden and with someone with whom she didn't know how much she valued and respected him in her life, was outside of that bandwidth. And so you see this fallout for her where she just doesn't act like Susie for much of the rest of the episode. But it's not all for nothing, and it's not all for show. It's not all for showing how what a great actor Alex Borstein is. It's to focus the character. We were wondering what shape taking on new clients would take from one episode ago. And I don't think she knew either, but now she knows. But we'll get there. We have, we have a little talking to do before we get there, but now she knows. She's going to find the Jackies of the world, the unappreciated, the ones that have a, a light shining that, that no one cares about until someone is, tells the world, hey, you need to start caring about this. Yeah, and in many ways, I think he would have gone unappreciated even in death, and which was why I think she had that big old panic moment at the funeral and realizing no one's here, even in his death. Like, I need to make sure someone knows about all the things he did. Those final words that he had that his sister passed along that were basically just this super caring, you know, look out for this, watch out for that. This appointment was made for the apartment, like these types of things where, you know, it really showed Jackie's full uh, relationship with Susie at this level that Susie never really recognized. And I'm so glad that that Amy and Dan took the time to show this and have it actually be woven into Susie's growth because they didn't really have to do that. They could have simply had like a memorial type thing for Jackie and have her be sad. But like you said, it's actually what propels her to the next step, which was very smart and very clever to weave that in. 
It also gave us an opportunity to have Susie come on over into the mix with the Maisels and the Weissmans and be like more a part of the group because now besides Chester, we don't really have anyone for her to play off of in other areas of her life. So having her come over, I mean, it was adorable to see her in her little PJs and pull her little chair next to Midge's at dinner and just all the different ways that she was trying to cope with with everything that was going on. Did you think it was okay that they kind of had Susie have this sort of regression, this sort of childlike, the whole whipped cream scene with Rose? Like, what did you think about all that? That's why I think of her capabilities in terms of this narrow emotional bandwidth that I keep going back to is why she had the regression, why she had the activity sheets in the tea room, why she just was off her game for most of the episode was that she was operating well outside her comfort zone, processing death, realizing that her hard candy coating let someone in that she cared about. She's not supposed to care about anything. She's this dyed-in-the-wool, hardcore New Yorker. She can't care about stuff. Now, all of a sudden, she does. And she has no tools for processing it and dealing with it until she does. And I think additionally, the realization that Jackie cared about her and that she really had someone in her life who, yes, they like, you know, kind of did the banter and the bickering and the sort of like grousing at each other. But at the end of the day, he was taking care of so many things. He made her little apartment a home and he he made it somewhere that she could feel comfortable. The fact that they slept in the same little bed and all these things. And yet it was just like she didn't know what she had till she lost it. It also gives some nice context and reasoning behind the introduction of the weird magician. <laughs> right, right. That was so odd. And for those of you guys who have watched Gilmore Girls, the Paladinos have a real wiggy little thing with magic. If you watch uh, We've Got Magic to Do, there's these kids doing this, like throwing these like confetti in there and they're like, Ugh! like all the other characters are like super eked out by these kids. So I think that that's especially hilarious that you would have a magician. <laughs> Maybe it's like exposure therapy for Maybe. the Paladinos. <laughs> like they're trying to get over their own distaste for magic. <laughs> Maybe so. Maybe that's it. I'm super proud of us that we called it on the Susie Meyerson and Associates uh, coming together in this season because, my goodness, when we saw her being brought to that obvious office space ready apartment situation, I was like, oh, my God, this is where it's all going to come together. I can completely see this. And to have her little henchmen be, you know, the the springboard for this. Her realtors. I know. And, and, you know, the whole, like, just give us a taste and everything. I was like, okay, all right. So she's she's going to have these backers, but it's going to be in this, in, in kind of a, in the way that, that works in Susie's world. You know, like, she was never going to be able to go get, like, investors, proper investors, right? Which is no. what she needed. Yeah. She needed someone to inject some sort of capital into this situation. And they did by offering this space. And apparently, you know, we the rent for a while and all this kind of stuff like they really have her back on this I a hundred percent see everything we were saying Imogene working on you know they've been showing her dipping her toe into all these like controlling situations the little like a Tupperware party how she could like run that show and do everything like a boss you know I completely see her being like an office manager running things running appointments whatnot and then we also know that Tess is gaining her receptionist skills over at the insurance company these women are gonna come together I just know it and and become this little thriving business in that scene with the Tupperware, I suppose we'd need someone from that era to verify whether or not Tupperware parties looked 
and sounded like that with like wearing them like hats and stuff. They were doing, they were having a contest. Uh, so they were saying who could make a hat out of the Tupperware that was being shown and who's ever had like the best hat was going to like win probably some sort of little goofy piece of Tupperware. Yeah. I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's completely accurate. Why would they make it up? Because it is goofy. But but it, it, in the relationship that we've ever seen between Midge and Imogene, I've always gotten the idea like Midge is the friend with the, let's just say the upper hand in terms of who's the big friend, who's the little friend. But in that scene, did you get the sense that Imogene, since we know that that's a multi-level marketing situation, right? Mm -hmm. Did you get the idea that like Midge was under Imogene? Like Imogene was like, get your shit together. We need to move some product. Uh, I don't know exactly that. I think you're right about the original relationship that they had. I think that Imogene's gone through a lot in the last season. Everything we've seen, you know, with the with the bust of her marriage and then everything she's witnessed with Midge and, and starting her own career and everything that's going on. I just think we're seeing a lot of growth with the with that her character. And now she's somebody who also, when given a little bit of power, she takes over. I mean, they've showed it twice now. She was in charge of the move from the storage unit and she was immediately like, like, let's go boys like in like yelling at them and then same with the Tupperware party she's like let's make some deals like she was not going to fool around anymore so for me I mean it was speaking to the whole it's going to take a lot of little jobs in order to pay the bills at the Weissman house and you know this was one example and again just shining a little light on Imogene as like a good businesswoman ah yeah that those pieces do fit together although she doesn't get much screen time if you were just to link together only Imogene's scenes, you would see someone that started with the lady's toe-touching exercises and is now cracking the whip on her friends, on her acquaintances, on moving men, <laughs> etc. Yeah, she's 100% taking this boss position in her own life. And part of that is just the natural progression of as you're getting older, you start to kind of not want to take any shit. And that's where Imogene is, where she's like, you know what, I can take more control of my own life and around around me, you know, the things that are happening. How much shit do you want to take? <laughs> Me? Personally? Zero. <laughs> Less than zero. Oh, she's crossed that age barrier. Oh, God, yeah. Probably five years ago at least. I was like, you know what? Y'all can take your shit. I'll show you where you can put it. <laughs> take it to the shit store. Put it in a backpack. Right. It is not for me. For sure. Am I a rube? Yes. <laughs> or, or, or was the view out her window supposed to remind me of something like Times Square or something? Oh, yeah. Very... It was Times Square. Oh, it was? Okay. I think it was supposed to look like that. Yeah. Okay, good. So I'm not too Ruby. The reappearance of Sophie Lennon into Susie Meyerson and Associates' fledgling office helps answer some of the concerns that I had going into this season, such as, would Sophie have continued influence on Midge's career in terms of, does she still have industry clout enough to potentially blackball Susie again, you know, in terms of booking Midge following the debacle on Broadway? Were you surprised to see that Sophie had, her empire had folded overnight I think, yeah, I was because I, I mean, I would have thought someone like her would have had a lot of investments, a lot of money put away. Diversification. Yeah. So I was quite surprised when it turns out that Dawes isn't even around anymore. I was like, whoa. And that's obviously what hits Susie pretty darn hard. I mean, 
But at the same time, it's been a period of time and, you know, we don't really have truly any insight into the way that she handled her finances. So I think that we have to assume that what we see on the screen is completely accurate and real. It obviously sets up this potential unholy alliance between Sophie and Midge and Susie, really, where they are able to somehow find stages for these women to work on and give them an opportunity to continue their careers. So, I mean, obviously, the Burlesque Club is a huge opportunity. We can see that it is in shambles, both in the way that it's run and physically. You know, they put a lot of dust on that set. Things don't work. Things are unsafe and hanging down the hooks and whatnot. So there's so much potential to turn that into this, like, shining, beautiful palace of a theater that I can see that this could be the road for both Midge and Sophie to really get back into the whole career world here. What you got me thinking about, just to interject, is is that when people control the entire ecosystem of, a, of say, a product and its delivery, then that's where you, you can get rich, right? That's part of Apple's success, is that they own the whole whole chain. What you're saying has my little brain swirling, like if Susie and Midge and Sophie were to not only own like the talent portion of entertainment, like, like management, but then where it gets shown, like if somehow they were to either control or acquire a stage like the Wolford, maybe like Joel's place, maybe like the Gaslight. Who knows? These are the only maybe all three places maybe it turns we out know. To franchise a little. Then that starts to create this cycle of building success, where like Sophie, she was obviously just had a rich lifestyle and was paying for it as she went, but there wasn't anything behind it, and that's why she's in this position she is now. She still has a name though. It just needs a little rehabilitation. I mean, I totally see that the Burlesque Club is this vehicle for these women to come together and to create, like you said, I think a business opportunity for them to pitch in and own it. I think it also is the opportunity for them to control what talent gets on the stage. And, you know, a woman-owned business with women as the talent, I think that you have a, you know, real potential winner there for finishing out the Maisel season, maybe even the series. Um, but I can 100% see this. And they you no take longer- out that that element of relying on men blowing up your life, et cetera. So and if you've got the whole ecosystem, as I mentioned, you got the whole thing, then you're not reliant anymore. 100%. So going back to the comment that Joel makes, this assertion that the Burlesque Club is a step backwards, I think we can unravel his concern and say, no, not really, because you're only looking at it like being the MC. Mm-hmm. But it's very clear with how disorganized everything is and how everything could just use like an amazing cleaning in that place. And suddenly, you know, they've been certain to show us that there are so many empty chairs in the place and certain to show us that it can, you know, show a movie, at, you know, on one evening and they have this beautiful bar set up and they have everything they need. It's very much like we have the costumes in the barn. Let's put on a show like they have all the elements. It just needs to be organized and clean and run a lot more efficiently. Everyone is being shown as being completely inept. I mean, the owner's falling asleep at his desk. Right. You know, we, we can't get anything done. Boise's a mess. And the women themselves, the dancers, they know their own individual act. They have their own individual talent, but there doesn't seem to be any coordination between them in terms of what they're doing or even when they're on stage together. Yeah. <laughs> they can't seem to avoid, you know, just smacking into each other. So 
Midge's like extreme level of organization, even imaging, who knows, maybe she'll be the stage manager. Could you imagine her back there cracking the whip? Like there's a lot of opportunities here. It's a good example of people rising to the bar, rising to the challenge. Like she only raised the bar an inch. Don't run into each other during the finale. And also we're going to start knocking on the dressing room door. We're going to keep the doors closed and the guys are going to stay out and we're going to, we're going to have some level of decorum. We're not going to walk around here completely nude with these men coming in here and screaming, get your ass out there. Like this is no longer the way you're going to talk to the talent. And this is no longer the way you guys are going to handle your own selves. You're going to have some degree of separation between like when you're doing your act and like when you're in the dressing room, like there's going to be some amount of like sort of respecting the talent, if you will. This makes sense to me. And this is so in Midge's wheelhouse. Like we've seen her come into situations. We saw how beautifully she did the apartment. We saw how she can orchestrate like things when she worked at the makeup counter. Like she has these skill sets that can really make things run smoothly and really get like the biggest bang for your buck. Well, and find the weak spot where she can apply a little pressure to get things done, like brisket. Yeah. (laughs) That same kind of thinking. I don't think her intention is to run off Boise. It's to lift him up, be like, run this place like a professional, for God's sake. Because he was, like I said, a very low bar to get that paycheck. Well, let's talk about that moment when he's, when she has that section during one of her monologues, right? Where she starts with the, your wives know where you're at, and but there's lots of girls and women in the audience who I assume are girlfriends. And he starts to have a reaction to that. He like steps up and the camera focuses on him. And I didn't walk away from that scene with a clear idea of why? What was that face he was making? Was he offended? Was he okay, starting gonna, to take note of her talent? What What's the deal here? I'm going to shed some light. Okay, so also Drop his, some truth on me. His wait staff was also female and they sat down to listen to Midge. One of the things that was happening there was Midge was revealing that you are not pulling one over on your wives. They are complicit in this entire situation and they're fine with the fact you're here. We all know you're here. And and that itself took away some of the mystique, you know, like you're not sneaking around successfully behind your wife's back. They all know. So I think part of that made Boise be like, you know, because that could make some of the patrons uncomfortable, right? Additionally, though, it was empowering the women, the wait staff that sat down, the girlfriends kind of kind of stopped leaning on the guys they were with and kind of sat up straighter, like. We're not stupid. We're not bystanders in our own life. We know exactly what's going on and we allow things to happen that also benefit us. So we're fine with what you're doing because guess what? We're doing our own stuff. We have the milkman. We have the delivery guy. We have the handyman. We have those guys coming to us. So guess what? We have our own shit we're hiding from you. That truth was making Boise like, oh, because every woman there was like, yeah. That's right. We do. We're not stupid. And, and we are running our own show. And so you could see a lot happening there. So right? you saw like the, the wheels of insurrection starting to turn. I, I think he did. And I think also that if you think about speaking that way directly to those men who a lot of men, women too, they get off on the mystery of it, the sneaking behind someone's back and thinking you're you're pulling one over on the other person. Just that alone, taking that away and saying, you're not pulling anything over on anyone. The smells, the stuff in your pockets, everything is going to tell on you. So don't even think you're here secretively. Your wives know you're here. 
probably one of the cardinal rules of someplace like a strip club is not to bring up the wives, right? I would think that that's like a <laughs> kind of a boner killer, right? Is talking about, does your wife know you're here? It's uh, probably yeah. not something you talk about. So I wouldn't know, but I assume so. So, but you can see why Boise then would be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We're talking about wives. We're talking about taking away the mystique of what you guys are doing. And we're saying your wives are actually tricking you. You're the fools. I see. She's moving into insulting the clientele type area. A little. And I mean, and and to that end, I don't know if she'll continue to make that joke, but I think it was important to tell the audience because you and I have had a lot of conversations this past couple days about the dancers themselves, the club itself, how it would be looked at in society. What are Amy and Dan trying to get the audience to know about the dancers and know about the women, like the wives at home? So this was like a moment of clarity. You don't need to be sad, audience members. The wives are not tricked. The dancers are here of their own accord. We're going to respect them and legitimize what's happening here. We're not going to let them be treated like trash. We are going to raise the bar and say you need to respect these women for what they're doing. Like, I see what the show is doing. And in that monologue, it like kind of set the tone for like, hey, audience members, you don't need to feel uncomfortable. We're not going to make these women feel like they're doing anything that's wrong or be ashamed or anything like that. And also, we're going to kind of take the men are in power here and take that down a notch and make it be like, no, we all know what we're doing. We're dancing for money, but also your wives know you're spending your money here. That was a lot of truth. <laughs> well, that's how I see it. I mean, you know, I'd love for our listeners to give us some feedback if they feel like I'm not getting it right. Please tell us what you think. What was Midge's whole story there? And why would Amy and Dan spend so much time having what I'm going to say is, I don't want to say disrespectful filming of the dancers, but some of the camera angles, some of the amount of time we spent sort of lingering on the... The nudity that wasn't necessarily like what the dancers would want shown, like having the dressing room stores open and stuff like that, right? Okay. Like it kind of set up this whole like voyeuristic slash we're not exactly respecting the dancer space or when they choose to come on stage and how much skin they choose to show and when they do. It was all sort of like this isn't planned and we're kind of handling this in a very like haphazard the women are just sort of walking around, you know, it's not really like a tease show right now, but I think they're going to tighten all that up and make it to be where it's like, this is a legitimate way to entertain. And this is a perfectly reasonable forum to do this in. I think they're going to elevate everything. And, and so then I think a lot of that stuff, a lot of the camera just lingering on butts and stuff like that, I bet that goes away. And I bet we start to see closed robes and a little more thought into the way that they're doing their dance routines and that kind of stuff. I bet it kind of all gets more sophisticated. I see. So the more gritty, grungy, lurid way that they were depicting the club was intentional to show the state of where they were starting from. And maybe even how the how the women felt about themselves, like they didn't close their robes or anything. Like there was a real level of just sort of like whatever. Um, they, they obviously are all talented women and have some clear skill sets that can be honed into something that comes off sort of just more polished. The physical bumping into each other, the hitting her head on the hook. I mean, it was almost like pratfalls kind of thing in order to show how silly and disorganized and out of control this place was, but that it could be something great and something very respectable. 
hopefully in episodes to come. We'll see that. I agree, though. The idea that the other women in Midge's orbit will come in to help facilitate that, that probably has legs. I wonder if they'll keep the name The Wolford. What imagery do you get with that name? I get the imagery of a men's establishment. I get the imagery of Big Bad Wolf and Little Red Riding Hood, which puts the women in the position of being little girls who are preyed upon. Mm -hmm. And I think Midge is going to turn this into grown, empowered women who are, in fact, taking advantage of these silly men who think they have a chance you know, with these women at all, and that they are no longer going to be this like little girl that's preyed upon by the big bad wolf. But instead, the dynamic will change. So I, you're right, I could definitely see a name change coming. I mentioned earlier, Lenny Bruce appears. Oh, my goodness. Now, here's the thing. I'm always happy to have Lenny come on the stage at any point in time. Like I was super happy to see him. This was a little bit of a stretch though for me. Like I appreciate a teachable moment with Lenny. I get that the title has to do with like you're constantly learning and nobody stops learning. The whole world is is school and you can learn from anything. But I don't know that this whole throwing stuff at her and you've got to learn about distractions. She's been in the business for quite some time and she has had to mitigate distractions. I mean, think of her in Vegas with the people talking about the food and all that stuff. Was she distracted? A hundred percent. But I thought she was like very much working through that. So this kind of seemed like it came out of nowhere. I don't know exactly what he could have done instead because I'm glad he was there. But maybe it's a larger message rather than just the incidental performance by performance someone's chopping their steak too loud kind of distractions or yelling take your shirt off or whatever exactly maybe because you're right she was already dealing with those and still recovering finding funny jokes entertaining the audience moving on to the next performer i also uh, like to see when luke kirby comes on stage as Lenny Bruce, I think he does a great job playing that role. It just makes Mitch light up. Like it changes her whole energy in a way that makes her more playful and less kind of like lockjawed, you know, and she's always like a, a biting kind of personality. Like she can be real jokey and stuff, but she's more playful jokey when he's around. The concept of being distracted and not getting distracted might be more of being like Joel was saying, the, is this a step down, getting tied up in just your day job, your emceeing, well, I guess it's a night job, but 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 right. emceeing at the strip bar, moving that beyond to actually maybe I should kind of run this place. Maybe I should own this place. Maybe I should determine how this whole place functions. The distraction was all, whatever those other concerns were, just the night-to-night steak heckling whatever right but i'm gonna go even bigger than that i'm gonna also say to you know not be distracted by things like Susie living at your house and her dealing with her loss your parents living at your house and the antics that they're going through not getting distracted by your in-laws or your kids or anything else that poses a threat to midge's attention you know because it is going to take all of what she's got to pay attention to how to run this business because it's not like she has any background you know she's really just using her her, yeah like her intuition on on like this shouldn't be run this way this should be more organized i do want to point out for those gilmore girls watchers this is very lorelei this is very like working up the ranks to owning your own inn 
right? Mm, yeah. And so for a lot of people, you know, first you do, you know, you, you are young, you work at a place, you have ideas, you get to the top of the ranks, and then you kind of shift over to being like a fledgling owner. And you have this dilapidated building, which is what the Dragonfly was. And you have to like work to clean it up and put all this money and time into it and then grow your staff and grow the business to become something bigger and better. This is very familiar. I noticed you were just saying that a lot about these episodes that there, you were feeling. <laughs> well, and to be clear, here's the deal. I know what you're about to say. You might say that I felt like the recycled plots, but here's the deal. I'm not going to be so ugly on the Paladinos. It's not that. It's just that I think that there's certain things that they are very good at writing about. They have certain sort of like, like a newsroom, like a newspaper room. They're very comfortable in that setting. So to put Abe in the Village Voice makes complete sense. But his entire review storyline, the review and the play actually in and of itself, if you guys watch Gilmore Girls, Die Jerk is the episode, go watch it. It's 100% about Rory having to write a review. And at first she just turns in something that's very bland and vanilla. Like it was, it was good, you know, and she gets beat back by her editor that like, you've got to be more hard hitting. You've got to say the truth. This is what our readers want. And she comes back with this scathing review. The exact same fallout happens in a public setting where she gets hollered at in a cafeteria by the ballerina that she is, is not very nice to. And it's the same fallout that Abe experiences at the bar mitzvah. For me, it was super familiar. I kept leaning over and being like, everyone's going to be mad at him. He's going to write a bad review. Even everything with the cape, like I see all this happening because they were gushing about having press seats yeah. and all that stuff. Went, yeah, but also in Gilmore Girls, they were like, oh, we have these reserved seats, like with the cape. It was like the same kind of feel of like, we're so special and blah, blah, blah. And then she has to write this review and it's like, ah, you know. So it's not that I disliked it. It was just super duper familiar to me. And I think it's very plausible that this is something that could happen. And I thought it was clever to weave in the people from the Catskills. I mean, they could have picked anything. They could have just picked a neighbor down the street or something. But to bring back in and have them sing the song and the <laughs> everything in the lobby of the, of the Broadway show, like, oh, my God, it was so much. It's one of the double-edged sword parts of podcasting or, or reporting on media at all is that occasionally... Ever so occasionally, we run into the people that make the stuff <laughs> that we talk about. Right. And you don't want to have said anything negative because it gets it's embarrassing. And you don't, you know, they bring up the concept of loyalty, Paul, yeah. which I thought was, it was smart to bring that up because are you being disloyal if you call something out for not being as good as it could have been or it having potential, but they just didn't quite get there? Are you being disloyal? Somewhat, but loyalty was a million percent talked about in this, including with Asher. Abe has a point of view. It is about the integrity of theater, and he despises pop culture, essentially. Well, and they did a good job of laying in before. Remember, he really disliked Bye Bye Birdie. Right. So they showed that he he did, was not about like the sort of musical, lighthearted, just kind of fun show. So you knew going in some show that was being done on a stage you know, at camp, essentially, wasn't going to cut the mustard for Abe. They were not going to turn in <laughs> Shakespeare. I mean, he already knew the material. And it sounds like they took the material that had promise and ran sort of a pop culture wand over it and, and spat out something he couldn't live with and advise other people to go see. Well, and here's the thing. If they did it at camp, it was probably a 30-minute show. 
right? Probably, right? Right, yeah. And it was probably pretty simple. Now, if you were doing a Broadway show, it was probably like two and a half hours. And like he said, they had to stretch the one good song they had across the entire two and a half hours. And it was just too much. Like they watered down parts, you know, and it, it just became too much. Now, I was shocked that somehow he managed to weave Asher and their antics into this article. Like what in the world about bringing Asher into this? He probably shouldn't have done that. Is it possible that it was more like standing up for something you believe in, even if it seems like you're being disloyal? So here he there was having to like there push back on something. I like that a lot better. Something that his, you know, friends had invested in, that it was a it was a son, you know, of a good friend who they were they had supported all these years, but here they were having to go against it just the same as they went against this FBI building and were being disloyal, some would say, but at the same time they needed to take a stand. Bringing Asher into the storyline and and then r having this total reveal that he and Rose had dated was a sidestep to the, to the major plots that I did not see coming. Why throw a monkey wrench into their relationship when they, they haven't been smooth sailing these four seasons? Right. And for Abe to be so, I mean, the word is childish, even though we're talking about adult relationships. I guess you're supposed to let some of that 30-year-old stuff be bygones, but he felt lied to is, I guess, the core of it. But all of his, his rationalizations, they were funny, but they wouldn't work in a real relationship, right? He said something to the effect of that he was on a break to study for his PhD, and he told her that he might come back <laughs> afterwards or, or something like that, right? Right, right, right. It's funny. But here's the thing. Does it not speak to the whole theme of loyalty? Yes, it does. He felt betrayed, right? Mm. And so, and and then we also... See, you're better at this than me. <laughs> but then we have everything with Asher and him feeling betrayed by everything. And, and you know what? In fact, continuously calling her Rosie was poking the bear. Acting overly familiar with Rose in front of Abe when, and when obviously on some level it bugged him. Even after he said it bothered him, he kept calling her Rosie, you know, and yeah. it was like, okay, you're, you are being a bit much. Okay. But it was inadvertent bear poking before You know what it reminded that. me of? It reminded me when Jason Alexander played Stucky. Uh, I don't know Stucky. Yeah, you do. From Pretty Woman, when he's the lawyer and he hits on Julia Roberts yeah. and gets punched in the fucking mouth. I never saw that. Oh, God. You're seen. Doesn't matter. It's stucky behavior. That's what you need to Too know. Too much ROM in that com for me. <laughs> well, whatever. You need to know. It's behavior he's shown in other shows that it's, it's just kind of shitty to do to your friend. Okay that y'all dated before, but if bygones are bygones, then let it be. Why are you bringing it up? Why are you calling her a pet name? Turnabout's fair game. If Abe is supposed to be over it, then so are you two birds and you shouldn't ought to be joking about it. Should not be. Not if you don't want someone to get pissed. And that's totally what happened in this. All in all, I mean, the addition of Jason Alexander as a part-time contributor to the cast, I like. Also, it gives us this other party to have them play against. Like, that's why I like Susie coming into the apartment. I loved having, like, the combination of Rose and Susie at the tea room and having them have to figure out a relationship. Before, do you remember, like, Rose kept thinking that Susie was a man? And a plumber. And a pl <laughs> For like a very long time, though, she thought she was a man and yeah. would like refer to her as a man. Like now she's giving her this big cup of whipped cream that is showing this softer side of Rose. 
through Asher and through Susie, we actually get a much better picture of who Rose was. She was dating Asher at one point, and their relationship between Abe and Rose was not smooth even when they were young. You know, they broke up. She dated other people. This was all awkward and everything. And then we also get to see development with Rose in that she is somebody who would bring you the cup of whipped cream and a spoon and activity sheets and not chastise her for not, you know, sucking it up over there, but just trying to make her feel better. You know, I, I think that was like a really big window into Rose that I didn't ever have. What you're saying about Abe made a little light go off. It's just a dim one. You can't see it from there. Oh, okay. But the idea of, of loyalty within Abe, that argument is not going to cut mustard with him, even though the argument is funny. It exposes that his devotion to his, his work ethic has superseded his relationships with people forever. Yes, yes, including Rose. Including his wife. And, and of course we know that because he quit the college, he quit the university, you know, knowing it was going to ruin where they were living and everything that they had worked for, you know. So he, you're right. Like he does put his own righteousness, being right, sit, pointing out things that are wrong in the world, even if it hurts other people, mm-hmm. his friends, his family. I mean, across the board, this is an issue. It's a growth area that until this episode, I wasn't really sure where to go with him. I knew that he was maybe coming around to seeing Midge's point of view a little better. But now I see that it's a bigger, I don't know, problem is the right way to characterize it because he's not unsuccessful. He needs to, I mean, for a fully rounded out, nice fatherly character, he needs to have a little more devotion to the people that support him than he shows. When you said it, I think you're right that to say that it's a growth area. I don't think we've seen any growth. Oh, it's, right. I, I mean, mean, I mean, that's, that's an important identity. to point out. Like, I mean, from and obviously from him being, I mean, I can't believe in front of the FBI for him to be sitting there and being like, I actually stood outside. Selling out his friend? Yeah. They even, were going to get off. Even though the matter was totally settled. Like Five seconds. It would have been done. Very uncool. You and don't who need knows? to try to do that. Do you think it's over? Yeah. You yeah. Know? Although it probably gives him some street cred with his beatnik audience, right? With his, yeah, with his Village Voice peeps. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that happening. Obviously, we we're having some growth there. I would like to also say that with the Maisels, when we have Moish and Shirley, this was an episode where I felt like they all really gelled as a larger family this time, like with Joel and everyone like sitting around the table. Didn't you actually feel like it was the first time where they weren't exactly snipping at each other? It was chaotic and they were all talking to each other, but they were all talking to each other like family, you know, and how badly Shirley wanted Rose to come back and visit. That was unexpected. What a what? (laughs) I think at the end of the day, it again made me feel like the Maisels, Moish and Shirley are actually very generous and very loving people. And for as grating as Shirley can be, she most certainly was extending a welcome hand to any of them. You know, I think she would have taken Susie and it would be kind of hilarious if they had skipped an episode and had Susie move out to Queens. Like how funny would that have been? Of all of them, she would be driven the most crazy. (laughs) But also maybe would have been blown away by Shirley's mothering, which she never had. Having, you know, just the whipped cream cup from Rose was like blowing Susie's mind. What if she had someone offering three types of lunch? What if Shirley was like, Susie, we have chicken, we have peanut butter. Like she's never experienced being mothered at all. So I think that there there could have been, maybe there will be in the future, some sort of funny interaction between those two of, you know, her actually feeling 
taken care of. I think we're moving on with Susie pretty quickly and going right into this office mode. So I don't think we're going to hang around here, but we could have. And I would have laughed. The one thing in that dinner scene that stood out to me that I think you pointed out also was that when the Maisels were ganging up on Midge for her having been dumped from the camp production of the play. Yeah. And they started to pile on that it was because she can't sing, can't act, can't dance. That Rose, I can't remember another time that she actually defended Midge to a larger party. Could you? No, I think you're 100% right. I was really surprised when she said, like, she did a great job. I was like, what? That was really shocking. I'm wondering a little bit in her matchmaker mode if she is starting to see some of the positives that Miriam actually has. You know, because she's taking each person she meets and breaking them down into pros and cons. Everybody now, mm. because she's trying to matchmake, right? Yeah. And so I'm wondering if because of that, she's now looking at Midge and saying like, well, she actually can do this and she can't do that. Like really actually starting to see some of her positives instead of just being an entire list of negatives. <laughs> yeah, well, she's, yeah, you're right. I mean, we don't need to go into the details about her matchmaking, except that it's ramping up. Oh gosh, it's totally ramping up. And and I think that, you know, finally we had a moment where the woman says, you know, I'm sending the check. Here's where to send the check. So we saw confirmation that she was, 100% making real money, not exchange of bar glasses or anything, but something real, real money that she's making from this. So I have complete respect that Rose has like formed her own little, her own little side hustle. One member of the Maisel clan that was on camera in every one of these episodes, but really only had one scene to himself. When he and May finally have the moment, the I need you to meet my parents moment. Were you surprised at all by May's storming out reaction to that? No, because I think that she is not looking forward to the rejection and the questions and the comments that are going to come from this. It's clear that she's had tons of life experience with this, and she's not looking forward to reliving any of that. The very clever sidestepping of using racial slurs by saying, I'll write them down for you. And then having him just read them silently and be like, whoa, that's a really bad one was a great way to remind audiences of, you know, the the prejudice that May would face mm -hmm. without using any of the language on screen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very clever, very thoughtful and a way to give us that information without spreading that those nasty slurs, without them becoming part of the show. I wonder, and this is just, a, just me wondering, if today's actors feel a strong resonance with Abe's advice to be careful what your voice says, right? So Ooh. having your character, even if, even if the world knows that you're playing a character, you're getting paid to play a character, right? but that character still says... Words that if you go out in the street and say them to now, to now, they will ruin your life. You will lose your friends, lose your family, lose your income if it gets put around that you said those words. So now you spare those actors from having to say those words. I wonder if it's if it's a mutual thing. Like the actors could have said, I really don't want to. Yeah. Look because at this woman and say those words. Not only that, but let's let's not forget that when they go do press, lots of times in interviews, they'll say, you know, in this scene, you had to say blah, 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 blah. How did you feel about saying them? And now you're starting to take it out of context of the show. And you have the actor sitting there talking about 
a scene that they had, but it can easily be taken out of context. And suddenly you just have the person's face saying the words, not on a stage, not in costume. And, you know, like you said, it can be taken completely out of context. Again, also, I think that it's smart to realize the platform you have, realize that for a lot of people, you'd be introducing slurs to a group of a generation of people who hadn't heard those ones before. And so there wasn't a reason to be the one to introduce anyone to those words. Or to keep like, it's like, uh, what is the... Like a gatekeeper? No, it's the, um, it's the tradition of um, keeping pictures to honor the dead. Right, because as soon as you forget them, then they're then they move on beyond yes. memory. Very cocoa of you, very yes. cocoa, right? Well, what if it's the same thing for racial slurs? If no one remembers it because no one keeps saying it or putting it on TV, then does it finally go away? Yeah, it can finally die. And I think that that's true. I think that the Paladinos themselves are gut checking what they're writing and saying, you know what, we're not going to be the people who brings that phrase back or that those words back onto mainstream television. And neither is this podcast. Definitely not. <laughs> Do you think that Moish and Shirley, having just spoken about them, are going to be more accepting of May and Joel than the two of them think they will be? My guess is that that time, that era is no, that it would be roundly rejected, even if they might be able to be civil with her. But then again, Shirley says what she wants when she wants. And so does Moish. What do you think? I want to think that one of them is going to be very accepting on some level. Maybe Shirley because she's just dying for Joel to be with someone. I mean, obviously, she brought it the pregnant woman, you know, which was was a, a, an, a odd, an odd choice, yeah. right, for Joel. And so to me, she seems so hellbent on getting him coupled up with somebody. Maybe she'll be more okay. Moish to me will come around with May's business acumen. I think that the more that they talk, the more that they realize that she is going to medical school, that she is a smart woman, that I think over time there is true potential there for them to all get along, I believe. If they get that far. Yeah, if they get that far. <laughs> It's just high hopes for these characters. I mean, I sat there and said, surely Rose and Abe will come around to Midge's act when she's in Vegas or when she's in Miami. Surely they're sitting there eating lunch. They're going to come to her show. They're going to finally see her being making money and, and everything is going to be OK. And it, they didn't come around at all. And it just sat there. Yeah. So, I mean, nobody has completely changed their spots. There have been small top level changes, but we're, but we need like core <laughs> type, type changes, which are harder to come by and then they take a longer time. So we are halfway through this season and we know season five is our last season of the series. What do you think about how much ground's been covered? And do you have any predictions for the last half of this entire season? Well, for one, uh, near term, I believe we are done trying to cram our way into Susie's personal life. Whatever she decides to do away from Midge, she will handle herself without Midge's interruptions. I believe Susie Meyerson and Associates will expand. I, I don't see any reason why. At least Imogene and Tess is a, nat is a natural ad. So all your predictions, I'm borrowing stealing, one might say, your predictions about the future of Susie Meyerson Associates. Will it get off the ground running this season? I think the ending of the season would show the pieces falling into place. 
That makes sense. Absolutely. And we've been lacing predictions for the wolf throughout this podcast episode, that becoming a platform where our female protagonists make it the, the the center of their their universe for putting out their entertainment message. I also like that. I think that makes a ton of sense. Those things, maybe not falling into place immediately, but sooner or later, Sophie weaving her way into the mix as less of an indomitable big dog. I mean, she'll still think of herself that way, but she'll have a come to... Susie. <laughs> come, right, come to Susie moment where everybody's got to play on the same field. Uh, maybe even the magician. I don't know. Um, that's as far as I can think. Um, okay. what, about, what about you? Introducing an episode like Interesting People on Christopher Street reminds me that the Paladinos are interested in showing different changes societally that are going on during this time frame, that they aren't abandoning the decade that we're in. That's a big part when we when we're looking at like costuming and we're looking at the sets and, you know, even language, the way that they talk. But reminding us of where the LGBTQ community exists during this time, um, getting to see John Waters was amazing. I loved seeing him. He was so adorable. And having Midge show that active interest in Susie's life and try to explain to the viewers why we can't just have Susie dating a woman openly and remind them of where we are in time and space. I see the Paladinos continuing to do that. Even with the Burlesque Club itself, it's the same type of thing where I see them stopping in on these sort of historical milestones along the way, kind of letting us dip our toe in and being like, remember, this is where we are societally. This is what people thought. This is what people look like. These are the things that women were dealing with. Really important portion of this show. And I'm glad that we had that opportunity. I do want to make sure that we mention that Susie's relationship, love life, and the fact that she just turned on that and was like, I'm completely focused on my business. So why are you talking about who I date? To me, that was less about sexual orientation and a whole lot more about the Bechdel test and more about why would these two women have to sit here talking about relationships versus their business plan, whether it's a man or a woman, whomever either one of them are dating. That's not what this has to be about. This can be about their careers and their aspirations and the things they want to do. A lot of people have argued that, you know, Midge isn't a very good mother. And there's tons of articles out there that are like, but this isn't about her being a mother. This isn't about Midge and Susie's dating life. This is about them building their careers together and how they they use each other to support each other and guide each other to the next levels of their careers. I appreciated that they showed us that, but then pulled back and were like, wait, this isn't what these women are working on right now. And so we don't need to even delve into it too deeply because mm -hmm. it's not the point of the show. And even, you know, we have these little moments with Midge going on the like, date and stuff like that. Dipping our toe in. The most obnoxious guy in the world. Oh my God, that was so terrible. Take a hint, dude. She doesn't know Spanish. Men are so terrible. Oh my God. But but again, just reminding us of what it was like during that time that, you know, again, the matchmaking and all the setups and all that stuff. 
still very prevalent today, you know. Um, so, I, so I do think predictions wise, I see the Paladinos continuing to dip our toes into the historical moments that are happening during this decade. And then also reminding us that women are becoming more empowered. This is something that we're going to be working on. And we're going to even try to answer those questions that the audiences might be having, like, well, who would she be dating? Or where are the kids? Or blah, blah, blah. And we're doing that by saying, having the characters almost look in the camera and say, I'm focused on my career right now and everything else is periphery. So if you're worrying about those other things, get off that train because we're riding the career train right now. And that's the thing we're going to all focus on. Kind of like capiche audience, like quit it with all the rest of the talk. Totally reminds me of a post I saw recently where someone was commenting on the fact that Ethan's like five feet tall oh now goodness, and he's he supposed is. to be five years old. <laughs> no, he is. I almost think that that's there just for like comic relief that it's like kind of silly of how old he's. I mean, he turned six at that fake birthday party, supposedly, but just so freaking it's, weird. Remember the original beginning to Everybody Loves Raymond, how he's like, we it's, have kids, but it's not about the kids. Uh, Don't. A million percent. And there's been a lot of conversation that Midge is a shitty mom. And everyone's saying, it's not about her mothering skills. Like, get off of it. And it's not about who Susie's dating. Like, get off of it. It is not about these topics. These women are really working on their careers. Let's focus on that. There's plenty of other shows that are about who's dating who, you know, and who and, and mothering skills. So move on, you know. Other predictions, I can see where both Rose and Abe hopefully are kind of finding their compassion or empathy as they go through the process of writing reviews and those types of things that Abe is going through and getting feedback from the community and hopefully tempering his judgment. And then on the other side, Rose, where she's like, picking people apart in order to matchmake them. I think she is actually finding good things about Miriam. And maybe we're going to have some gelling of those two and find some positives in their daughter, something that they're very happy about and proud about for her um, and all that she's accomplished. Like I could see maybe at the end of the series, somehow at some point them admitting that she owned the apartment, you know, and that they didn't really own it. Something where there was like some real, she's doing it and we're proud of her for it. So I see all of that happening. It would be hilarious for me if Joel and the Gaslight and somehow the Burlesque Club all come under ownership of somehow of these women. I think that could be fascinating. There's certainly a lot of venues here for them to be using. I look forward to that. This season feels like it is a whirlwind with us already being halfway through, but I'm really excited to see what the second half of the season brings us. This is Caroline. And this is Paul. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast or all of our Pod Clubhouse podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, or Amazon, or Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please give us the highest rating and tell your friends. Please make sure to go over to Pop Culture Review, our sister site, and read along with us when we get like little extras, little pictures from upcoming episodes, and, and just little things that, that we get that you guys want to hear the gossip on. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you. Pod Clubhouse.